One of the most highly anticipated books of 2012 was written by Timothy Keller. But that's no surprise, since really everything written by Timothy Keller comes highly anticipated. And there's good reason for it. In his books, he tackles very complex issues facing the church today, and he does so in an engaging voice that readers find very easy to read. His newest book is no different. It's titled Every Good Endeavor, Connecting Your Work to God's Work. It's published by Dutton and will be released tomorrow. We recently put Dr. Keller on the line to ask him about his book and about the ever-important topics of business, vocation, and calling. Along the way, we talked to college graduates, and we talked to parents, and we talked to Christians who feel stuck in their jobs. I began our conversation by asking why, of all the important areas of daily life the church is called to address, a Christian view of vocation seems to be one that is so underdeveloped. Why is it that applying a biblical worldview to the workplace seems so easy, and yet in practice is really so slippery and so elusive? Well, I think it's probably because uh, of the the fact that the church doesn't have a, a a uniform. It's not a consensus view on how on how the church is supposed to relate to culture more generally. And uh, you know, actually, there's another book, this book Center Church, um, which came out pretty recently as well, in which I try to tackle that. I don't tackle it in the, in the Every Good Endeavor book. But basically, you've got very different views on, what, on how the church should relate to the culture. It's based on very different views about common grace. It's, it's based on somewhat different views about, um, what, you know, about actually the, the role of the institutional church. And because of that, I think the doctrine of vocation, which everybody says, oh yeah, it's really important, really important that um, that all work is a calling from God, and that where work is important, and, the, and that God has to God has to come to you need to bring your faith and your and God to bear on your work. Uh, yep, that's important. But then the uh, problem is it gets caught up that doctrine of vocation gets caught up in this controversy, and then so people come out really since, since there's no con, uh, consensus on the how to relate to the culture, there's no consensus on what vocation means. Early in the book, you write two sentences that I think are really important to getting at sort of what this book is about. You write, quote, A job is a vocation only if someone else calls you to it, and you do it for them rather than for yourself. Thinking of work mainly as a means of self-fulfillment and self-realization slowly crushes the person and undermines society itself. End quote. Talk a little bit more about the corrosive influence of individualism in the workplace? Well, the basic idea, the, sec- the basic secular idea is that there is no meaning uh, in life. We're here by accident. There's no overarching, there's no moral absolutes. There's no, we weren't put here for a purpose. Um, but then what most of the folks say, I've seen this in many forms, they say, well, of course, there's no meaning in life. You have to create your own meaning. So um, a lot, I've seen a lot of secular people and atheists say, Yes, of course, there's no meaning to life, but that doesn't mean you that we're you know, we we can't live a, a fruitful life and a happy life. You create your own meaning. Well, now actually, you, somebody should drill down on that at some point. Maybe I will, and say it's impossible to create your own meaning. If you create your own meaning, you don't have it. Um, but basically, what they mean is uh, you decide you 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 decide what is right or wrong for you. You decide what you think is important, and then you live according to that. But in that case, you're, there's no calling. There's no sense that I am, I am um, there is something higher than me that's more important than me. So you see, if you don't have that, then there's no such thing as sacrifice and servanthood. 
Everything you do is selfish. Everything you do is selfish. And there's also no real hope. There's no real hope for the future. You just basically are trying to create a, a little bit of, uh, of happiness for yourself in this brief span of time that you have. But in the end, there's nothing but darkness. So when you put those two things together, the idea of vocation um, in, in requ- and the idea of hope and the idea of servanthood and the idea of sacrifice and unselfishness, it all, uh, it all actually depends on there being something more important than you, something that's already there, like God. So the whole idea of vocation is gone and work is nothing but a way of getting ahead. And um, it is crushing us, I think. Love for others is really central to the biblical idea of vocation. I mean, this is a really practical question, but if a Christian shows up for work on Monday morning and they're irritable towards others and they're grumpy, what's wrong? Well, in in the book, I try to I talk about the fact that the gospel is brought to bear on, on our work in a couple of different ways. One of them is the, the, the heart. One of them is that the, the grumpiness and the anger and the, and only doing what I have to do to get by, and the that means it's a lack of a of a gospel gospel character. The gospel is supposed to make you grateful, supposed to make you humble, supposed to give you inner peace. Um, it's supposed to make you generous in your spirit. And if you just don't show all those things at work, it means that the gospel hasn't really you're not really letting the gospel change the heart the way it ought to. And by the way, in the long run, a gospel changed heart usually is. Um, makes you a pretty good worker, makes people want to work with you, makes people want to be on your team, makes employers happy with your work. So in the long run, having a gospel-changed heart actually is uh, pretty practical in the field of work. I think the first time I heard the phrase, God of options, was from Mark Dever. He was talking about young pastors who take a pastorate in a local church but are always half in. They're, they're always eyeing a different church, always looking for a, a new church, a bigger church, a better church, a better position. And so they're not committed to their church. They're half in. And we see this maybe with a lack of commitment with young adults in marriage. And there seems to be a common thread with Christians in the workplace who are in their position. They're, they're sort of half in. They're so drawn to this, you know, quote, God of options idea that they're never all in in one particular job. They're always looking for the next job, the next position, and so they're, they're distracted. I mean, do you see this as a, as a problem? Yes. Actually, I, I, I'm not—I'm being a little ironic, but I say just say yes, but it, your question um, was well stated, and I agree with it. And it, people, I, I can just add this. People— are looking for the more fulfilling thing. Very often they say, um, you know, I'd like something that is just a little bit, a job that's just a little more exciting to me. This job's a little boring to me and more and better paying. And I think, I think the Christian understanding of vocation is if you produce a product, if you produce something that makes people's lives better, even if it's a rather boring process to do it, you're doing God's work. You're, you are, um, uh, you're caring for God's creation. You're serving people's needs. Why does it have to be in so incredibly, why does the process have to be incredibly fulfilling when you know that you are doing something that helps people? Um, and I, I do think that, that, that that's part of what I mean when I say that we've lost the idea of calling and we are looking now at work as ways of fulfillment and, and that actually in the end crushes you. So you're always half out, as you said. I love what you wrote in your book on page 36. It's one of my favorite lines. Quote, work did not come into creation after a golden age of leisure, 
end quote. I mean, work is deeply embedded in creation. I mean, this is pre-fall. It's glorious. It's it's according to God's design. So this this is a parenting question for you, but I think it's it's one that's relevant to all of us. How do I, as a dad, teach and train my young boys that they were created to work, that it's part of their very humanness, that it's deeply embedded into them by the Creator? I mean, this is especially true for my 11-year-old who is prone to be lazy like his dad. Well, I... I of course, you have to get the basic doctrines of creation and fall and redemption, and you have to give, give it to children at every age at whatever. But you have to give it in a you know in a form that they can handle at that age. But I think you have to say that work was put into the Garden of Eden when God had everything absolutely perfect. There was work, and uh, that must mean that even though in this life, work is often difficult. Our bodies break down, so work can actually, um, you know, wear us down. Um, our minds and our hearts aren't what they should be because of sin, and very often we we have trouble paying attention to things. And but basically, in the end, we are made to work, and we're only happy if we uh, if we do work. And you can even say people that don't have work or don't do work in the long run get depressed. And the reason why they do that is because we were made for it. We're made to to find fulfillment in working and being useful to others in that work. And I think it's a, there's a way of getting that across to 11 year olds and seven year olds. You you say the way I I raise children too. you say things, you're not sure they get it. You, you find out in question and answer to what degree they understood it, to what degree they don't. And then you try to make it simpler until you feel like you've hit home. Let's move forward and, and, discuss a young man or a young woman who's deciding on a career. I mean, one of the things you say in your book is that you find in New York City that a number of young adults who graduate from college, they select careers as a form of identity. I mean, a career becomes for them almost something like a car. It's a, it's a status marker to them. Explain that. Well, it's, uh, there's been a lot of great books written recently on this idea that in the we live in a consumeristic age in which your identity is is seen in the products you consume. I'm the kind of person that wears this kind of clothing, owns this kind of um, elect- these these electronics. I you know I these are the accessories I use. So you actually get your identity from the brands that you use. And I, I'm afraid that what's happened here is that jobs are like that too. And there's just no doubt. I see plenty of people taking jobs that really don't fit. A, they don't. It doesn't fit their talents very well. And B, very often the jobs don't necessarily fulfill them because the jobs aren't really maybe helping people very much. But the jobs are high status, and because they're high status, uh, people feel like I need to be in that job so I can feel good about myself. So it's an identity marker. Uh, so people are very often not choosing. Uh, jobs on the base of vocation, not saying what gifts do I have and how can I be useful to other people through my work, but how do I take a job that gives me um, the same kind of sense of uh, self-worth I get when I'm driving a particular kind of car. All right, here's a hypothetical question, but I think it gets at modern business ethics. Uh, let's let's pretend in ancient Babylon there's a man who grows straw. He's good at it. He works hard. He serves his buyer well. He always delivers his straw on time. He's joyful. He's humble, and people like him. But his straw is then used to create reinforced baked bricks that are stacked 
one on top of another into the Tower of Babel. I mean, the question is this, at, at what point is the straw grower's vocation virtuous or not virtuous? Or to put this in other terms, how far is the Christian accountable to the ultimate ends of a company that he or she works for, which may exist only to create a great name for itself? Well, I mean, I, I, I think it has to be very, you have to be very directly collaborating with evil before you before you start to try to get that. See, the trouble with with the uh, the purest impulse is this: if I make bread and I know that there are criminals in town eating that bread and staying alive because of my bread making, should I really get out of that? Should I say, okay, well, only eighty, you know, only a certain percentage of criminals, but I mean, I'm, I'm helping them live. I mean, if you actually, um, Luther would laugh at the idea that you some in some pure way have to make sure that your work only furthers godly ends. He says, your job is there to, uh, you know, God feeds everything that has breath. That's Luther expounds uh, the Psalms, especially Psalms 145 and 146, 147, where it talks about uh, God feeds everything that has breath. He loves everything that he's made. And um, and Luther then says, okay, well, how does God feed everybody? Well, he feeds them through the farmer. He feeds them through the milkmaid who's milking the cow. He feeds them through the truck driver who's bringing the things to market. That's really God's work then. If you're just farming, you're doing God's work. It doesn't have to be a Christian farmer. You just do it, and, you, and it's God's work. Um, but then at a certain point, you know, uh, I do believe because I'm Reformed and I believe in worldview, importance of worldview, that work also does need to have, uh, uh, it has to be done by a Christian, from a Christian perspective. But I also think that Luther's got something to say, that all work is good work if it's done well. And that if you actually try to say, well, this work is actually helping someone who's furthering evil ends, at a certain point you'd be completely paralyzed, you couldn't do anything. One final question, Dr. Keller, and uh, we may actually overlap a little of what's already been said, but we, we live in a tight economy. And when the economy is good, Christians are more likely to have a spread of different vocations available for them to pursue, and they can choose a fulfilling career path that will make it most possible for them to express God's love to others. But in a a tight economy like the one that we are facing, when a Christian is, for a lack of a better term, stuck in one job and there's no other options and they don't like their job, how does the doctrine of vocation work in their situation? Luther's understanding of calling is that the, the, the farm girl who's milking the cows needs to, even if it's the only job available to her and she'd like to go somewhere else, she needs to see what she's doing is God's calling. She needs to see that this isn't just milking cows. This is my way of t- participating in God's care for his creation because he has decided this is how I'm going to do it. There's, there's a place where um, Luther takes, I forget what psalm, where he says, um, God strengthens the bars of the city gates. In other words, he gives you security. And then Luther says, but how does God strengthen the bar of your city gates? He does it with good governors and good policemen and good soldiers. And what he's trying to get across is that all good work done well is God's calling. And that aspect, see, I actually do think that the Calvinist understanding of calling, it, which is, doing God's work from a Christian worldview and the Lutheran understanding of calling, which is simply uh, caring for creation, being useful to other people through the work you do. I do think they're complementary. I really do. 
Um, and I, I think it's a, there's something of a, that's part, that's a very big part of the book is to bring out the fact that I think they're complementary. You've got to use them both. Uh, so seeing your work as a calling is not, is not a problem if you're stuck in a job you don't like. You need to say that right now it's still God's calling. And that gives me a I think that gives you a lot of peace to say, Hey, I can still, I can still answer God's calling in this job, even when I am looking for a job that I think fits my gifts better. That was Dr. Timothy Keller from his office in New York City, where he serves as the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Dr. Keller is the author of several noteworthy books, including his latest, Every Good Endeavor, Connecting Your Work to God's Work. It will be released tomorrow. At the beginning of this interview, Dr. Keller mentioned another recent book of his titled Center Church, Doing Balanced, Gospel-Centered Ministry in Your Church. That book was released in September of this year. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Authors on the Line podcast. This free podcast is supported, produced, and distributed by Desiring God in Minneapolis. You can subscribe and find a full archive of episodes by searching for Authors on the Line in the iTunes store or watch for new episodes online at desiringgod.org backslash blog. I'm your host, Tony Ranke. Thanks for listening.